Welcome to Ride Over Stride, episode 13. Welcome to Ride Every Stride with Van Hargis. This is a podcast about horsemanship and more. Our goal is to educate, motivate, inspire, and entertain you through an exploration of everything horsemanship and the intersection of horsemanship and humanship. My name is Laura McClellan, and I'm your co-host on Ride Every Stride, and I'm here today with Master Horseman Van Hargis, and we're going to be talking about collection, and it's not the kind we do at church, right? <laughs> That's right, Laura. Yeah, we're going to be talking today about uh, collection, and, and it's just one of those things that almost every horse expo I've done the last several years, I've been asked to do a presentation that we call Collection, Flexion, and Suppleness, and Understanding Collection, Flexion, and Suppleness. So it tends to be something that uh, we hear a lot about. And what I've discovered over the years, Laura, the reason we keep getting the questions is that nobody truly understands it. But yet it's because it's such a popular buzzword, it's a, such a popular phrase, people really want to understand it. So I've been trying over the years to try to simplify it to make it easier for people to understand. And I guess when I'm trying to think of collection and, and to wait it for people to understand really how simple that it is, at least the meaning of it, is I want them to understand that collection is really kind of a synonym for balance. What we want our horses to do is just be balanced. What balanced means is that within each gait, we want the horse to be balanced naturally over their body weight. In other words, at a standstill, for example, a horse has probably got about 60% of its body weight on its front feet. In other words, on the front half of its body, and yet only 40% of its body weight on its hind end. And at a walk, it's very similar to that. About 60% is on the front end, about 40% is on the hind end. And yet at a trot, it's a two-beat gait, and because it's a two-beat gait and the way the horse is diagonal in his gait, that percentage kind of balances itself out to about 50%, 50% in the front end, 50% on the hind quarter. And then at a canter, it shifts back even further still. So at a canter, we've got about 60% of the horse's body weight on the hind end and 40% of the body horse's body weight in the front. So that's just natural kind of for a horse. And I have a lot of people ask me, is it that important then that a horse travels balanced? And, and what is the purpose of traveling balanced? What is the purpose for seeking out collection? If a horse looks good, then leave him alone, right? Well, the, the purpose of that is, is that we want to increase the functionality and efficiency of a horse whenever they're traveling. Because you see, Laura, with, without us involved, if we were just had horses out to their own accord, running and trotting in the pasture, they would probably be fairly balanced. But the difference is and when we add a human body on their back and we add a human body on a fairly significant weak part of their body, not that the back is weak, but because of where we sit, it's like a bridge, if you will, between their front feet and the back feet. And there's a fairly significant span there between the front feet and the back feet. We've got all this weight sitting there. And, and the analogy I use when I'm doing this presentation in front of an audience at Expos is that like in my case, I weigh approximately 200 pounds. Well, you take 200 pounds plus my gear, in other words, my saddle, saddle pad. In the Western saddle, that thing may weigh up to 60 pounds, you know, combined with the saddle pad and the saddle and everything else, 45 to 60 pounds. And then in my case, you add another 200 pounds to that. That's 245 to 260 pounds sitting on that space between the horse's withers and their, the points of their hips. In other words, in that back area. Well, what we want to do is we want to help this horse maintain his balance at a walk, 60% in the front end, 40% in his back end, while we've added 
this additional weight to his back. And why is because we want this horse to travel efficiently. We want this horse to be able to travel comfortably while he's carrying this additional burden of us, the rider. So I I look at it as if we kind of owe it to the horse to train them, if you will, to carry that additional body weight so that they can be as close to natural with us on their backs as possible. And, you know, and I grew up in kind of a ranch setting. You know, a lot of the guys I rode with and worked with as a youngster were cowboys. And even at a youngster, I started understanding or at least started questioning these things about collection. And I would at home kind of tinker around and play with it and try to understand it better and try to obtain it. And meanwhile, some of my rancher buddies would kind of give me a hard time. Well, why are you working with that collection? Van, those horses were born knowing how to walk, trot, and lope. Just leave them alone. Let them be. And I, I was kind of struggling whether or not I should believe them or kind of believe some of these other experts that I was seeing in the horse and horse training industry. And then what really turned my mind around was when somebody just mentioned to me, yeah, those ranchers were exactly right. Horses were born knowing how to walk, trot, and lope. They don't need our help to do that. But they were walk, trotting, and loping without a human being on their back. So when you add that, that completely changed the dynamics. It makes me think of, and I, I know you've demonstrated this at various places where I've been, the difference between, you know, a board across a couple of sawhorses right. just sitting there as opposed to what happens when you put a bunch of weight in the middle of it and what exactly. that does. That's the issue. Right? Exactly. Yes. Because what happens, it changes the shape. It changes the dynamics. And why is that important? Well, to kind of, again, use that same analogy with the sawhorses and just visualize this, if you will. If we did have, say, a fairly thin board, say a one by four, stretched across two sawhorses that were fairly good distance apart. And if I put weight right in the dead center of those boards or in that of that one by four, what would happen is that one by four would sag. Mm-hmm. Now, if the one by four was actually attached to the sawhorses. When it sagged, what happens to the sawhorses? They're going to spread out. Yeah, the tops of the sawhorses will get closer together, but yet the bottom, in other words, where the legs are, they spread out. Well, and why is that important? What's significant about that? Well, if you will, visualize that sawhorse again and imagine it was actually being suspended in the air. And if we could rock that sawhorse back and forth as if it was a pendulum, we would want to see that pendulum swing just as far forward as it does backwards. In other words, whatever that range of motion is, we want it to be equal in the front as it is behind. Because that's more efficient? Exactly, because that provides the greatest amount of efficiency. And why the efficiency there is because the longer that that horse's leg, in other words, the sawhorse, the longer that leg is on the ground, the more balance and the more weight that horse is suspending at any given moment and the more power that horse has. And, you know, I gave an analogy not too long ago about whenever I was in college, I was a running back. And whenever my feet were on the ground, I could do lots of things. I could run, I could accelerate, I could decelerate, I could change directions. But whenever I was airborne, I was in a dangerous position. I could no longer gain speed. So if I had to jump over someone, that was a very dangerous position to be in because while I'm suspended in air, I can't change directions. I can't go to the left. I can't go to the right. I can't speed up. I can't slow down. So that's the same thing that happens with our horses. In our performance world especially, we want this horse with almost any and every stride to be able to support his body weight, but also be able to speed up, slow down do the things we want a performance horse to do, but most importantly, on every horse, we want them to travel efficient. And what I mean by efficient is we want the least amount of energy consumed 
for the greatest amount of effort put out by the horse. And it's been proven time and time again that that takes place whenever those horses' legs are on the ground. So whenever that hoof touches the ground, we want that pendulum that we just discussed earlier to reach as far forward as possible, allow that foot to make contact with the ground, stay in contact with the ground until it almost has to come up in the rear. So in other words, the longer that pendulum and the longer that foot's on the ground, the more balanced, the more efficient, and the more powerful that horse will be. So that's our target goal always. But what happens is whenever we change that dynamic, we change the point in which they pendulate. I guess that would be a word. Is that a word? It is now. We, use that one? <laughs> we want that pivot point to allow that hoof to swing just as far forward as it does back. But yet if that sawhorse spreads out, like we were talking about earlier, that changes the angle. And as a result of that, now he's got all this range of motion in the front, which may look real pretty, but that foot doesn't stay on the ground very long before it gets to the point where it can no longer be in contact with the ground and no longer have the power and the balance. So our goal is at each and every gate, we want to bring those points down, straight down from the horse's shoulders, straight down from the hips to where we create that angle again, if you will that allows that pendulum to swing evenly, both front and rear, from the center point of that pivot point. And I know that sounds very complicated, but the reality is that it's really not that complicated. The other thing is, okay, good, We if we understand that in the dynamics, well, how can we achieve that? Mm-hmm. So let's go back to that sawhorse again. If that two-by-four, or one-by-four rather, were stretched across the top of those two sawhorses, but yet Instead of being just a board on top, let's say we had an extension in front of one of those sawhorses. And let's just say for the analogy's sake, that would represent the horse's head and neck. So now, if we had something in the middle between those two sawhorses causing the one by four to sag down, what happens to the head and neck? It rises up. Absolutely. So by logic then, if we can get that to come back down to a more natural position by some sort, of effort on our part and some sort of assistance on our part as riders, then what happens then to the center point between the two sawhorses, his back? If you push down the ends, the, the middle comes up. Absolutely. So what we're shooting for again is we want to see our weight be counterbalanced, if you will, by the position of the horse's head and neck. But here's the hard part for people to grasp. We all, regardless of our discipline, whether it be English or Western, and regardless of what we're doing in, say, Western pleasure or reining or cutting or roping, all of those things require the horse to be very efficient and very athletic. But what happens if we compare the Western disciplines with the English disciplines? And we also looked at the different types of horses, because in our Western disciplines, especially the events that I just mentioned, those are what we call stock horse breeds, quarter horses, paints, those types of horses. Those types of horses have a very flat top line, meaning that from their hips to their withers is fairly straight across. And then, of course, their extension, their neck, is usually not much higher than the horse's withers. And that's what we call the top line. So if we compared that to a lot of our English-style horses, warm bloods, thoroughbreds, and even some of our Frisian horses. You know, we just recently did a horse expo, and they had some phenomenal, great-looking Frisians there that are under saddle. And those horses are all built very up and very high up in their front end. So what we have to understand when we're looking at collection, we also have to take in respect or how this horse is built naturally. But no matter how they're built naturally, they still pivot over their shoulders. You see, because what a lot of folks don't realize is, is that between the shoulder blades, horses are not connected with hard tissue. There are no joints up there connecting 
the head, neck, and spine with the horse's withers and with the horse's shoulders. It's all soft tissue. It's all cartilage. So even though that cartilage is flexible, it still hinges at that point. So even with that said, if we can create some sort of bend in the horse's pole region, creating some sort of a little arc in the horse's neck, if we understand mechanics and it's going to be hinging still at that point of the withers to where the spine passes through that soft cartilage into the back, then at that point we can help elevate that back. If the back elevates, it's just like that one by four spread across the two sawhorses again. When that back of the horse reaches a position to where it's almost natural, or sometimes we can even increase that by putting a little arc upward in the horse's back, therefore getting more drive from behind. But always we have to realize that not always is more drive from behind better. We want more power. We want more drive from behind in one respect, but we don't want that pendulum to swing so far forward in front of that pivot point that the horse has all this power expressed forward, but has nothing to push back off of on the, the behind him. So again, it's all about keeping that hind leg on the ground for a longer period of time, for a longer, smoother stride, so that the horse has the power that we're seeking out. So it's weird how everything just kind of ties in, isn't it? And most mm-hmm. people don't give much thought to this. They just throw the saddle on the horse's back, get up and go for a nice joy ride, and away they go. But true collection, in other words, true balance, can really enhance a horse's performance by having them balanced over their feet properly and increasing the power and efficiency with almost every stride that they take. Okay, and so I think I'm understanding better what collection is and why it matters. And in, in 10 minutes or so, how do can you tell me how to get it, <laughs> how sure. to make it happen? Well, it's like anything else. It's a slow process. And there's so many different things out there that we see people do. And a lot of things I'm very opposed to. It's, it's not that I say don't do those types of things. But here are some of the things that we see. We see people saying... And believing, okay, now I understood what Van said. That means in order to get collection, we've going to have to get this horse to be able to break at the pole, arch in the neck, and therefore elevate the back. Okay, got that. So they get that aspect of it. Now the question is, okay, well, how do they get the horse to break at the pole, arch in the neck, and then elevate the back? How do we obtain that? So like typical Americans, what do we do? We look for shortcuts, right? And some of this, yeah, so we'll we'll try to get it through artificial means. I've seen people try to use a tie-down, for example. Well, it gets the horse's head down. Doesn't that solve the problem? Well, by the name it does. You know, tie-down implies that it ties a horse's head down. The problem is, is that it really doesn't. Mm. What it does is that a horse can still arches or still have his head way up high in your face. And depending on the type of breed of the horse, that may not necessarily enhance his collection. But what it can do, though, is it can actually pull the nose a little bit more toward the center of the chest if it's adjusted too tightly or whatever the case may be. But it's still a false tool. It doesn't teach the horse how to to use himself and collect properly. And the reason why is that too many times a tie-down used incorrectly uh, or used in the wrong application can actually give a horse something to brace against. And it's really not meant to be used as a brace. It's meant to be, and get this, nobody would ever buy one of these if we called it what it really is. It would be a collection support apparatus. (laughs) Who would buy one of those? Nobody that I know of, because it sounds better if we're going to buy it for what the name implies. We're going to tie the horse's head down. But a tie-down really does have its application, and I'm a big advocate of using them under the right circumstance. And in my little humble opinion, there's very few circumstances that it's really applicable. 
mainly in calf roping, team roping, and that sort of thing. And the reason why is because we it can help a horse stay somewhat collected while our hands are very busy doing something else, such as chasing a cow down the arena and getting a darn thing roped. Okay, so if the answer, if what we want is the horse's head down at a more balanced position and tying it down is not the answer, what is the answer? How do you get the horse to travel that way naturally without it being tied into that position? Well, it's the, and there's several other things not to do, but let's, let's go ahead and address your question. In order to get what we are looking for, rather than focusing on what we don't necessarily want or the tools we don't want to use, the answer is we, we really have to teach the horse how to be first and foremost, very responsive and soft to whatever we're riding the horse with, such as a bit uh, you know, mechanical hackamore, if people use those, I'm not a big fan of mechanical hackamores, but uh, a bozel, uh, even a halter to some degree. In other words, no matter what we're riding our horse with, we have to get a horse very soft and supple and responsive to that apparatus. And let's just say it's going to be a snaffle bit. I want to have that horse where it respects that snaffle to the point where it learns not to lean on it. It learns not to push against it. It learns not to fear it because all of those things causes a horse to be bracy and protective. We want a horse to be very calm and quiet in its mouth, have a lot of trust and confidence in our hands so that we don't cause the horse anxiety and, and the feeling that they need to protect himself or feeling the need to brace against it. So how is that achieved? That's achieved by doing a tremendous amount of suppling and softening exercises. You've heard me talk in other episodes about teaching our horses to flex. So I, I might do what we call lateral flexion. I might do a tremendous amount of flexion to the right or to the left. And each and every time the horse softens up just ever so slightly, I'm going to release that pressure off my bridle rein so that the horse understands that when he gives in, I'm immediately going to give back into him. Over time, the horse is going to train me to be even softer and softer with my hands by coming off that bridle rein when I just barely do touch it. And that's the type of responsiveness we're looking for. And quite frankly, Laura, that's a never-ending journey. We can never get a horse too light, nor can we ever keep that horse as light as we want. So we're constantly working on that suppleness and that softness on the bridle. Once we achieve lateral flexion, in other words, flexion to the left and to the right, I want to start narrowing that down because I can't think of any reason why I would ever want any performance horse to have their head bent all the way around to one side or the other. I want to always keep their head positioned somewhere between the points of their shoulders. So I'm going to, with that said, I'm going to go back and give you a quote one time that I heard from one of my heroes, a fellow by the name of Jack Brainerd. We were doing a clinic together out in Abilene several years ago, and I was talking to one of my listeners out there about getting their horses soft and supple in the bridle. And we were talking about flexing and bending and doing lateral flexion, and then again later working on vertical flexion. Well, that night at supper, Jack asked me, he says, well, Van, I heard you talking today about bending and flexing our horses. He said, so, uh, so tell me, why do you think it's so important that we work on that so much? And I kind of gave him all the classical answers that I've heard, that I've practiced, and that I've heard other people say, which are, we want to teach a horse to be soft and light on the bridle. We want to teach a horse to be supple. We want to teach a horse to be flexible in his neck. We want to teach a horse to be very willing and soft. In other words, all the classical answers that I heard, and Jack said, you know what? All of those answers are correct. He said, but the ultimate reason that we want to teach a horse to be soft and supple and teach a horse to flex, in other words, doing all those flexion exercises, we want to bend and flex them so that we can keep them straight. And there again comes in terms of our collection. A horse is at his most powerful, not only when they are collected the way we were talking about a little while ago, where their back 
in at least a level position, if not somewhat arced upward, when those points in which the horse's legs are going to uh, be the pendulum, and they can swing this as far forward as they can back. But the other strength and the other power point is when the horse's body is straight. So part of the reason we want to bend and flex them is so that we can keep them straight. So even though while we're working on the lateral flexion, I again want to concentrate on keeping the horse's head and neck between the points of the shoulders. While I'm doing that, I can begin now to start exercising for what we call vertical flexion. Vertical flexion is when a horse breaks at the pole region. That Those first few vertebrae, just right behind his ears, that area is considered the pole region. And if we can get a horse soft and supple through there, all even soft and supple through his jaw, and that just takes time and practice of a lot of work and exercise to get them to do this, and every moment spent doing that is very well worth it. And then, because as a result of that, we begin to take away some of the resistance of our horse. They begin to move more fluidly. They begin to move more balanced again, if you will, because they're not bracing against something. Their bodies are free to move the way they were designed to move and the way that we are encouraging them to move if there's little or no resistance. Just to make sure that I'm understanding correctly, when you talk about breaking at the pole, I envision that as being... Sort of like if I'm looking forward and I bring my chin to my chest. Is that what you mean by the vertical flexion and breaking at the pole? Absolutely. Right in that region, what we're looking for is for the horse to kind of bring the tip of his nose just toward his body just ever so okay. slightly. Um, if, if his head is directly in front of him, we want the, the tip of that nose to bring or the, his chin actually to come back toward, say, the center point of his chest. Okay. If we're moving off to the right, I might want that horse's nose to come back toward the point of his right shoulder just ever so slightly. In other words, just kind of bring that. And what that does, that creates a little bit of an arch in the horse's neck. Now, keep in mind, I said a little bit of an arch. It doesn't have to be a great deal. In fact, we can actually bind our horses up by asking too much. I said not too long ago that I want to train my horses at 120% so that 100% seems easy. And I got to thinking when I was telling people that I didn't want them to think that I always ask my horse to travel kind of behind the vertical, meaning that their chin is so far back toward the points of their chest that their face is no longer vertical with the ground, but it's actually kind of behind the vertical. In other words, more toward the points of their chest than it is straight up and down. But I want a horse willing to do that. It's not that I want them to do that. I want them willing and soft enough to do that. Because I know that if I can get a horse that soft and that light, then I can soften that neck up and get that horse soft through the withers and, again, all the way through their back, which, again, allows them to use their legs and their their feet so much better. It's all about balance. And that's the point, right? That it's not just about making them break at the pole for the sake of breaking at the pole or flexing in that way, but it's because of what it does to the rest of the body behind that. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And meanwhile, meanwhile we another reason we have to have a horse so soft and light in the face and willing to move forward into the bridle at that point is because that softness, that lightness there in the face makes it much easier now for us to drive the horse from behind into the bridle. Now, when I say that, I don't want to confuse people. When I say drive a horse into the bridle, it doesn't mean I want him on my hands. I want him at the bridle. We use different terms. Like in Western riding, we say we want the horse either on the bridle or behind the bridle. In English riding, we want the horse on the bridle. In other words, we want the horse all the way full in contact with the bridle. But I don't want people to misunderstand that that means we want a horse heavy on us. We don't want a horse pushing on us. 
Because again, if a horse is pushing on us, that means that they're pushing and they're bracing against us. You know, a a friend of mine named Lynn Palm said several years ago, we want to teach a horse the art of self-carriage. And what she's talking about there is, is that we want to position the horse in such a way through them being lightly responsive to our hands and to our legs that we can still guide them, stop them, control them, speed them up and slow them down by having them at the bridle. But we don't want them leaning against us because we want them to respect that boundary we've set for them with our bridle, but do so in such a way that they are carrying themselves, that we're not having to bear the burden of the weight of their head and neck area that we are not having to bear the burden of them pushing against us, that we want to teach the horse to willingly and softly be at the bridle so that they know what to do, where to go, but carry themselves under the art of self-carriage. And at the same time, by doing that and then using our legs to drive the horse into our hands, so to speak, then that allows us to control the horse's speed and his power. You know, for lack of a better term, we just want to be able to control that power, harness it all up, if you will, so that we can use it in a way that's most efficient for the horse. And at the same time, give us that performance that we're really looking for. Hmm. This seems like something that's that would be easier to demonstrate with a horse than to talk about in an audio podcast. I mean, I'm sort of picturing it because I've seen you do this, a demo about this, but it certainly doesn't seem like something that just happens overnight. This is a long process of little adjustments and little refinements. And You know, and I think that's one of the reasons that every great trainer I've ever met will tell you that it's a never-ending journey. Mm-hmm. There's a term that's very common, at least in the Western world, that that's a finished horse. That's a finished head horse, or that's a finished barrel horse, or that's a finished Western pleasure horse, or that's a finished trainer. And even though I know what people mean when they say that, it's like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, so that horse has reached perfection. It can never get any better. Or then I wonder who's riding it because I've never seen a rider that was finished. In other words, we're still learning. I mentioned Jack Brainerd earlier. He's in his nineties now. And when I did that clinic with him several years ago, he was in his mid eighties. And he said to me then that he was afraid he was going to die before he learned everything about these darn horses that he wanted to learn. And here is a man that has trained more trainers than most of us have trained horses. And when I hear a guy that has achieved as much as he has and his students have achieved as much as they have, then it makes me realize that he was right. It is a never-ending journey. So, yes, it's nothing that's going to happen overnight. These are things that take place every day, every ride every stride, if you will, we're working on this. So it's something that's a, it's an art form, but it's at the same time, it's something that once we're keenly aware of it, it's something we can practice with every ride and not necessarily every ride. Every time we work our horses, we can work with these things. We can work on teaching the horse to be soft and light on our hands, soft and responsive, because see, once the horse understands how to be light in almost every cue and every command that we give them, then they're willing to do that with everything because they understand the concept. And I totally agree with what you said. Sometimes it's easier for people to visualize it. But the point of these podcasts is to plant those seeds of concept. I want them to understand the meanings of these things so that the meaning of it will sometimes cause those lights to go off when they begin to start experiment and practice these exercises when they're at home Mm -hmm. and when they're actually riding their horses. I like it when people, you know, respond back. So I was riding my horse today and listening to your podcast because mm-hmm. that tells me then that they're actually listening to that concept and they're putting it into application at that moment. 
So really the part, part of these podcasts is to plant those seeds, plant those concepts, if you will, those ideas in people's minds so that they can better get a better understanding of what they are trying to achieve. And then hopefully they'll attend one of our clinics someday and we can do the application in front of their eyes and kind of give them more of a visual effect of what we're trying to discuss here in our podcast. Well, and I guess this, that's part of, and it's what you were saying about Mr. Brainerd, what's so inspiring about that is that there's always more to learn. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you're not going to learn it all in a single podcast episode or a series of them or a single clinic or a single expo or a single book you read. There's always more to learn. There's always refinements of it. And, and even if you've heard it before, hearing it again, you'll get something different out of it each time. And so that to me, that's a very inspiring attitude toward life in general, but certainly toward horsemanship that the listeners are not going to get every answer they want from listening to this one episode. Right. But, but at least maybe it'll spur that curiosity of, and to get out there and try and learn more and figure out where, where they can learn more about it. You know, absolutely. And you know, and that's to me, that's the whole point of horsemanship really is that it gives us that opportunity to think about things and then put those things into practice. And also be thinking that as we're practicing, they can get better and better and better. Laura, I'd, I'd like to kind of close today with, with sharing a story with you. Um, you know, I spent several summers with my grandparents. You know, when I'd get out of school, I'd go to my grandparents. I'd hang out with them for the summertime and did that a lot when I was really young. And uh, my grandparents were very hardworking people. They were in the dairy business and had some stalker cows, too. And it was very interesting that they got up very, very early in the morning and went to the dairy barn, brought the cows up and went to work on the cows. And while they were at the barn, they communicated a lot. They were talking about, we'll put this cow here. Well, this cow here has got a calf on her. We can't put this cow in the tank, which means they can't milk her and put her milk in the tank because um, she might be medicated or whatever the case may be. But there's all this communication going on between the two of them. Right about the time the last cow had come into the parlor to be milked, my grandmother would disappear and go to the house and start preparing breakfast. My granddad would finish up everything at the dairy barn, and he would come up there, and their timing was such that right about the time he walked in the house, breakfast was being put on the table. And of course, right about now, I'm starting to get up and moving around. So I go to the kitchen table, and we sit down, and I was amazed that regardless of how much communication was going on at the barn, they sat at the table, and hardly a word was uttered. Yet I was always amazed by watching my grandparents that whenever my granddad needed another biscuit, he never had to ask for it. He just looked a certain way, and my mom would, my grandmother would recognize that and pass the biscuits. If she needed something, she never really had to say much. She just kind of made a gesture, and he knew exactly what she needed. Years later, I thought about that communication, and I thought, you know what? That is the epitome of what I would call refinement of communication. I thought back, and I thought, you know what? I bet it wasn't like that when they were newlyweds. <laughs> I bet they had to verbally communicate, you know, pass the biscuits. Can't you see my tea glass is empty? Fill this up, or whatever the case may be. So this, con- this communication is going back and forth. But yet over the years, they had spent so many breakfast meals together that they knew what they wanted with very little verbal communication. I think of that, and I, I make that application to our training of our horses and our developing that relationship with our horses is that if we do the same things consistently and persistently enough, before long, we can almost, as horses and riders, finish each other's sentences. 
I know what the horse is thinking. I can feel it. I can sense it in the way they're moving their ears, their eyes, their tail, their feet. I can sense those things. At the same time, through my consistency and persistence in my riding and my training, the horse is beginning to feel what it is that I'm needing from him as well. And it takes less and less effort to still achieve the same goals with each and every ride. So to me, that's refinement of communication. It's a lifetime journey. The idea of collection, believe it or not, is a lifetime journey. If we can get a horse somewhat collected, then it makes me think to myself, well, how good can we really get this sucker? Can we get him to where he's floating on air almost? And I personally believe that the answer is yes, that we can get a horse so light and so responsive, even with our 200 plus pounds on their back, they're moving as if they're doing it effortlessly. They're doing it as if they're doing it completely natural. And then the grand thing is it not only feels so good as a rider, but it looks good and it represents the industry in such a grand manner when we take the time to work on those skills. And that's what I want people to realize is that we can achieve those things, but don't expect it to happen overnight. It takes a while. And that's the grandeur of being a horseman. And that's the grandeur of seeking out horsemanship. Very cool. Lots of things to think about. You know, the next question to me is wondering what the listeners are thinking at this point, and I'd love to hear from them. Uh, I know you would like to hear from them. If there are questions or expansion on some of the things that Van has talked about in this episode, we would sure love to hear those things from you. You can communicate with Van in a couple of different ways. You can always email your questions, your comments, your suggestions for topics for future episodes to us at info at vanhargis.com. He sees every one of those emails and he takes them very seriously and, and looks forward to responding to them. You can check the website in general on the website at vanhargis.com. There's a contact page and you can just go right to that and send messages to us. While you're there, check out his calendar to see where Van is going to be next and if he's maybe going to be in your area. You can also communicate with us via Facebook. Just look for Van Hargis Horsemanship on Facebook. Like that page and, you know, leave a post there. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your horsemanship journey and what Van can do to contribute to making that a better process. We're in the middle right now as we're recording this. We're working on his schedule for clinics. And maybe you would like to have the opportunity to participate in a clinic with Van Typically, a two, two-and-a-half-day clinic is an intensive amount of time with Van going over the concepts and putting them into practice with you and your horse. And I've heard nothing but rave reviews about the kinds of things that people learn from that concentrated time, both them with their horse, but also the time with Van. So if you would like to participate in a clinic, it's very, very easy to get Van to come to your community, to your area. All we need is a suitable venue and a host to help us put it together. We work with the host to get it set up, to get it promoted, to get the people registered. And generally, if if you're willing to help us out with putting that together, the host can actually ride free. So if that's something you're real interested in doing, shoot us an email at info at vanhargis.com. We can provide you with some more information about that and see if we can't get Van to your community very, very soon. Other than that, I think, you know, I always want to ask folks if you like the podcast, if you think it's useful, we would love it if you would consider going to iTunes or Stitcher and leaving a review there, just a couple sentences about what you think about the podcast. The feedback is invaluable to us, 
And the fact that you take the time to rate and review the, the podcast makes it more visible just because of the magic of how iTunes and Stitcher work. They make it visible to more people so more people can find it. So you can do that if you go to vanhargis.com slash iTunes or vanhargis.com slash Stitcher. That will take you right to the place where you can both subscribe to the podcast, but also leave a, a quick review. And we appreciate that very, very much. I think that's about it. Van, what do you, any last words? Well, Laura, I'd like to say thank you to you, of course, for doing all this with me and especially doing all the tech stuff because everybody knows <laughs> that I'm not very technically inclined. And I'd also like to say thanks again to all the listeners out there for the encouraging words for us to keep doing what we're doing. And, uh, and I'd also like to encourage them, like you said, to send us some ideas and let us know that what we can do to help them because this is my passion. And uh, with that in mind, I'd like to say that until next time, just remember, it's your trail, your journey, your life. So ride every stride. <laughs>